Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Thank you, David, for reading these words to us a few minutes ago. I'd like just the last sentence of the chapter. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There's a salvation that better occur before you're in the church. And there's a salvation that occurs after you're in the church. And we want to remember both of them. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I want to preach to you a very simple message this morning. And I want us to ask and answer a question. The question is, what is a church? What is a church? Because there's a lot of misconceptions about what a church might be. And we want to remind ourselves of the great blessing of having a church. A church is not just a building dedicated to religious activities on Sunday. Most people think that. They drive down the road and say, there's a church, and there's a church, and they're referring only to a building where activities take place on Sunday. But a church is much more than that. A church is not a social club, and there are some of those in Greenville. A church is not a business organization for the Great Commission. There's many churches in Greenville that think that. In the passages we just read, which were three of the chief passages of the New Testament about the local church, there wasn't a word said about the Great Commission. Some think that a church is just a place for religious ritual, where you can go and watch something done before you on a stage, and that you're going to benefit in some way. It's not a tradition from our fathers to go do Sunday activities that are related to Americanism, baseball, and apple pie. Church is a whole lot more than that. And this church is a whole lot more than that. And I want you to consider with me very quickly, because I have many points, on what a church really is. We cannot fall into the routine or the mindset that a church is just a place where we go on Sunday for a few religious activities. Because it's much, much more than that. Let's begin. I only have an opportunity to give you a couple of minutes on each point. So we're going to have to go quickly, and we're only going to touch on a few verses. First, in answer to the question, what is a church? It's God's temple. God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands like Solomon built. He dwells in a temple made up of believers that have come together in a commitment to worship Jesus Christ and love each other. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 of our several options of verses. Let's use 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What is a church? It is God's temple. You are in the temple of the living God, and it has nothing to do with the four walls around you. It has everything to do with the brothers and sisters in the pews in front of you, behind you, and beside you. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul, writing to the local church at Corinth, says this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God... Him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, 
which temple ye are. That is not talking about your body. You have to go to 1 Corinthians 6 to have your body described as the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is the church because this chapter is about ministers and what they can do to the church of Jesus Christ. They can build on the foundation wood, hay, and stubble or gold, silver, and precious stones. And for a minister that mistreats the church of God, he is mistreating the temple of God and God will destroy men who hurt His temple because His temple is holy, which temple ye are. Ye is that plural pronoun meaning all of you. Make up a temple, not the walls. You make up the temple of the living God. What a glorious thing. We could spend a long time on that subject, couldn't we? I'll bet some of your minds are thinking of other places we could go in the New Testament. But we don't have time because we got to keep moving. Because you don't know what a great thing you have in a local church of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. First Corinthians three sixteen and 17. We have a God's temple, and we are that temple, and He is worshipped in that temple. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and see that it is the Spirit's home. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells. Ephesians chapter 2. What is a church? It's not a building where you go for Sunday activities. It's much more than that. It is the temple of the living God. Amen. We are. If we were meeting out in the lawn, on the lawn, we would still be the temple of the living God, whether we were in here or not. Because ye are the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 22, it says, In whom ye, Ephesians 2, 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. It is where God dwells and lives through His Holy Spirit. He builds churches together by adding to the church daily such as should be saved. And that resulting group of believers creates a temple, a habitation, a home, a place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Now, the Holy Spirit is that being that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 moved upon the face of the waters and was the, was the creative being in the creation of the world. God spoke and the Holy Spirit did it. And we had the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. And that Holy Spirit is dwelling and living in this place today Because God has put us together as a habitation for the Holy Spirit. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at another aspect of what we are as a church. It is not a light thing. I hope you got that from the first passage. To mess with the church of God. Him will God destroy. Colossians chapter 1, a third point. I'll lose count shortly. It is Christ's body. Unbelievable. We are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without us, He is the head without a body. There is a mystical relationship. Mystical because I can't explain every aspect of it. But it is revealed to us in the Bible in these words. He is the head and we are the body. As your head knows and directs all of your bodily members, He knows and directs 
all of the bodily members in His body. A church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to turn you to this passage, but I'm going to remind you of it. It says that Jesus Christ filleth all in all. Now that is an infinite being, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ fills all in all, and yet it says about us, we are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. He is incomplete without us. You say, how can the Lord Jesus Christ be incomplete? Because God made us part of Him. He has joined us together, and without Him, He is incomplete. Without us, He is incomplete. Without Him, we are incomplete. And with us, he is, the, he is filled up to fill all things. That's Ephesians chapter 1. Let's, get, let's use Colossians 1.18 so that you'll know that it's mentioned in various places. It says of our Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.18, And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Our Lord Jesus Christ gets all the preeminence. He's the cornerstone of our church. He's the head of our church. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the apostle and high priest of our profession. He is the savior of the body. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He is the door to the sheepfold. And we could go on and on. If you need more help, go home and click Shadrach, Meshach on our home page. He is the head of the church. So that this, this assembly today is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ without which Jesus Christ is incomplete because God has so ordained it that we are members of His body. He directs us. He gets all the glory of us. All the activities that the body participates in is for the glory of its head. Because its head is its face and its glory It's the most comely part of the whole body. We cover up the rest of it and we leave our head exposed. And our head is exposed preeminently today because Jesus Christ is that head. We are God's temple. The temple of the living God. We are a habitation for the Holy Spirit that was instrumental in the creation of the earth in Genesis. And we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the potentate's property. We started this morning by reading about seven golden candlesticks. Each church, and seven were listed. Each church is a golden candlestick, and we are one by the grace of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only potentate, walks among those seven golden candlesticks and checks on us, cares for us, provides for us, and offers an intimate and personal relationship with anyone in His churches. Because it is to the church at Laodicea, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. With a potentate's property. You know that passage, so I don't need to turn it to you. We are the guardian of the Scriptures of God. You know that in Romans chapter 3, Paul said, What advantage then? Half the Jew. What advantage do the Jews have as the church of God under the old covenant? Paul said, much every way, because that chiefly 
Unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had the scriptures. We have in this simple little meeting place a book that came down from heaven. Inspired by God Himself and written by 40 different men. We are the guardian of the Scriptures because that is what God set the church up for. The Old Testament guarded the Old, the Old Testament church guarded the Old Testament Scriptures and the New Testament guards them all. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, brethren, the local church, a local New Testament church, is so much more than just a place for Sunday activities. It is so much more than a social club. It is so much more than a business organization for the Great Commission. It is so much more than just religious ritual. It is the temple of the living God. It is the Spirit's habitation. It is Christ's body. It is the potentate's property. And it is the guardian of the Scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we know these words so well, but I want you to think about them in light of the church. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The man of God here is the minister Timothy and all other ministers that were ordained from him. Primarily, the Bible is the minister's book. Secondarily, it's everyone else's book. The noble Berean searched the Scriptures daily. So it's everyone's book, but it's primarily the man of God who's supposed to give himself wholly to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. But the safeguarding of the New Testament Scriptures and of the whole Bible has been committed to the church. Here we are, a little assembly. There's six plus billion people on earth. And we have a book given to us by the God of heaven. And it's our job to preserve it, keep it, love it, read it, study it, and preach it. We are blessed. A church is a very important thing. It's much more than just a building where we go for Sunday activities. We have the Bible to protect. You know, if you read a little bit about church history, you will find the Catholics claiming that they gave us Baptists the Bible. That at their church councils in 400, you can read about them, in 397 they had a council, in 398 they had a council, and supposedly they came up with the canon of Scripture. The New Testament canon was settled in the churches of Jesus Christ before 100 A.D. The New Testament that we have, most of it written before 65 A.D., claims to already know the canon. We're here in 2 Timothy. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is quoting Luke as Scripture. When You know, there's so many that will take you to 2 Timothy 3.16. Do you know what they'll tell you? They'll say, when Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration, all he was talking about was the Old Testament. Let me tell you something. The Old Testament has never helped a man of God in doctrine, reproof, correction, or instruction in righteousness because it was Moses' system of religion. The man of God needs the New Testament on how he's supposed to behave himself in the house of God of the New Testament. They say, well, Timothy didn't have the New Testament yet. This is the last book Paul wrote. He said, I am now ready to be offered. He had ended his ministry. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 that Paul had already written his scriptures. He knew about them and the people he was writing to knew about them. 
Don't tell me we needed Catholics to help us find the Bible in 400 A.D. They had it in 100 A.D. at the latest. The Scriptures of God. That has been entrusted to the church. Here we are in assembly. And we are going to fight for this book. We will, I hope, be willing to live for it. And I hope if the case ever called for it, that we would be willing to die for it like our fathers in the faith. Would we be willing, like William Tyndale, to risk our lives and die for the Scriptures in our language? And that doesn't mean a new version put out by Thomas Nelson Publishers. It means the Scriptures of God of 1611 that He has blessed with 400 years of fruit that show He has put His stamp of divine approval on it. More, of course, could be said on that, but we have to keep going. There's too many points this morning about the value of a church. We're answering an important question. What is a church? We're the guardian of Scripture. The church is a treasure chest, brethren. Look at Matthew 13. The church is a treasure chest. You say, Pastor, that's, that's a light statement for you. That almost sounds frivolous. Oh, it's not frivolous. It's a treasure chest. We have given to us mysteries that are precious treasures. There are promises given to us that are precious treasures, and it's in the church that we hear about them and find out about them. God has invested the church with secret promises. Now, I've told you I can only take one text per point, and I've got several for each point in the outline, but I'll cheat a little bit here and remind you that when we were praying earlier this morning, we were reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. The church is a treasure chest because we have promises from the God of heaven of things He has done, is doing, and will do for us. And it's in the church we learn about those things. We don't learn about them elsewhere. This is where we get them clearly fed to us. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said this to His apostles, after he had explained why he spoke in parables. He didn't speak in parables to make it common for this, to make it easy for men to understand. He spoke in parables to hide the truth of the gospel from arrogant and haughty men who would not humble themselves before him. Right. You know, there's many Sunday school teachers that have misled Sunday school classes by saying parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. To make it easy for common people to understand. No, not even the disciples could understand. They would have to keep pulling him aside and saying, please explain that parable to us. And they would pull him aside and say, why are you speaking in parables? They can't understand the thing you're saying. And he would say, because it's not given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to you it is given. And brethren, I declare glad tidings this day. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a treasure chest because those things have been given to us. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. All those righteous men of the Old Testament, including the prophets, did not know what they were writing when they wrote about us and the glory that should follow the Lord Jesus Christ's death. First right. Peter chapter 1. They did not know. They were righteous men. 
But we of the New Testament have been blessed abundantly with a treasure chest. Thank you, Lord. Look at verse 52 of this same chapter. Here he is speaking of gospel ministers under the name scribe. Matthew 13, 52, Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. You thought I was making something up, didn't you? By calling the church a treasure chest. It's a treasure chest, brethren. We have secrets the world doesn't know. We know everything they wish they could figure out. They don't know where they came from. They don't know where they're going. They don't know why they die. And they don't know the cure for death. Those are four of our simplest answers. We know exactly where we came from, where we're going, why we die, and the cure for that dying. Praise the Lord. We have a treasure chest. And it's called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, turn to Matthew chapter 16. The church is the fulfillment of a prophecy by the greatest prophet. The greatest prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you think that being a prophet's demeaning to him because it's not. He's a prophet with a capital P. In Matthew chapter 16, he asks his disciples what men were saying about his identity and it shows the confusion of the Jews at that time. But Simon Peter is given an answer from heaven. And I hope we all understand that the Bible tells us plainly that for us to ever know who Jesus Christ is, it has to be revealed to us from heaven. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus thanked His Father in heaven for hiding these things from the wise and prudent. Intelligence and education are no advantage when it comes to knowing the things of God. A humble heart and submission is the advantage. Jesus said, Father, you've hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you've revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Because God is not going to allow anyone to come to him on their terms. We better go to him on his terms. And then he goes on to say that no man can know the Father unless the Son reveal him, and no man can know the Son unless the Father reveals him. And here we have Peter getting a revelation from heaven. And Peter said in verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You know, there's there's hidden wisdom in that verse, and we, we don't have time to belabor this point. But for you to ever know Jesus Christ, it requires a revelation from God. We believe that regeneration has to precede believing the gospel. Because until our heart is changed and light is put where darkness was, we cannot see, know, understand, and we certainly will not receive the things of the gospel. They're all foolishness to us. The natural man will reject them. But here Peter got a revelation from heaven. And Jesus said about that revelation, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Catholics run into a verse like this and say, Peter's the rock. We look at a passage like this, and by reading the whole passage, we understand plainly that the rock is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because as we read the rest of the New Testament, 
the greatest statement that is made, the most important thing your faith is to lay hold of, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Christ of God, and the Messiah promised to Israel. And that's what Peter had declared that Jesus was. The church is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you are fulfilling prophecy. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me tell you how the gates of hell did not prevail against it. The gospel began when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven and commissioned 11 men to go and preach first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then in the uttermost parts of the earth like the jungles of the Piedmont of South Carolina. You know, it is a mystery of the kingdom of heaven, and, and great is the mystery of godliness that Jesus Christ was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. First Timothy 3.16 We are the fulfillment of prophecy. Our fathers were pagan idol worshipers. Our ancestors, you don't want to trace your ancestors back very far. Be content with grandpa. Be content with the great grandpa. You go back very far and you're going to find things you wish you didn't know about yourself and about your family. We were pagan idol worshipers, and I'll stop right there, lest we start thinking about child sacrifice and other religious orgies that took place in the name of religion, which we don't want to do. But I just wanted you to think about it a little bit. We are the fulfillment of prophecy. Thank you, Lord. Jesus Christ said the gates of hell. We were inside those gates of hell. And the gates of hell could not prevail because the gospel broke through them and saved foolish Gentiles like us. Thank you, Lord. The church, we're talking about our church today. It's the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and that prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an angelic wonder. You know 1 Peter 1.12, the angels desire to look into what we're doing this morning. Do you know why? Because God loved us more than them. Amen. They sinned and He's got them reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness and the judgment of that great day. And He saved us. Right. And they desire to look into these things. I want to turn you to a difficult verse, though, that I've preached to you recently. Ephesians chapter 3 on this point so that you can see it in Ephesians 3. Were we, as a church, are an angelic wonder. The angels desire to look into what God has done toward us. He did not, Jesus Christ did not take on Him the nature of an angel. Though they are greater in power and might, and it's not just a little different. You know, they talk about some of these athletes being the greatest But the greatest athlete compared to the next greatest athlete is only better by a very small margin. But the angels are greater in power and might, not by a very small margin, but by a great margin. And they were passed for God to save us. We are an angelic wonder as a church. Ephesians 3.10 Paul is explaining the mystery of the church of Jesus Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles. I preach this epistle to you a couple of months ago, and we just want verse 10. Here's why God did all these things through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church 
the manifold wisdom of God. God's great wisdom is displayed toward us in how He sent Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to suffer death at our hands to redeem us. That great wisdom in uniting Jews and Gentiles into one church has this intent, that the principalities and powers in heaven might learn about the manifold wisdom of God. When it says by the church, the church is passive. It's not active. It's not the church teaching directly the angels. It's by God's treatment of the church that teaches the angels His manifold wisdom. It's a little difficult verse. I thought I'd give you a a one to think on today. Ephesians 3.10. We've been over it before in detail. We're we're an angelic wonder. This isn't just four walls of this little shack that we meet in. That's not what's important. What's important to God has called us out of this world and shown His manifold wisdom toward us in saving us through Jesus Christ. And it is a wonder to angels. What the shame is, is we don't wonder enough about it. We don't praise the Lord enough about it. We don't come into His worship thankful as we should be. Oh, brethren, there's a heavenly connection. Hebrews chapter 12. You know this passage so well because I've, I've forced you to look at it the last few weeks. But we're going to go there again. Let's just quickly cover this one. We have a heavenly connection. Today, we are not alone. You know, most churches would look at our numbers today and say how pitifully small. But what they're missing is the general assembly that we're part of. And the general assembly is bigger than any church they've dreamed of. And here's how it's described. Verse 22 of Hebrews 12. Ye are come, not you will come when you die, but ye are come. Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We are the local assembly in Greenville. This is the general assembly in heaven. And church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That is the church. We have a heavenly connection. And that makes this church and this assembly a fantastic thing. An unspeakable gift that God has given to us to tie us into an innumerable. Now that's a, well, how would you write that on an attendance board? An innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. We have a heavenly connection. Brethren, I, there's many more things that could be said in each of these points. But for the sake of trying to get through the list of the points, I'll leave the verses to your perusal when the outline's on the website. We have a royal connection. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1. A royal connection. You know that I love 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, where Paul's exhorting Timothy to be a faithful minister, and he does so by appealing to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, which in his times, there's a time coming, brethren, when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself to this world which in His time He shall show that He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul appeals to Timothy in a personal letter. And that is the way we should speak to each other. We have royal connections. Our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He will own you as his brethren. He will say to God, according to Hebrews chapter 2, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. And there won't be one lost. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. We have royal connection. Because look at Revelation 1.6. God has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We are kings and priests as well because we're reigning with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says that when you're born again, a vital connection is made so that you're reigning with Christ. Yes, we're still on earth. Yes, He's in heaven. But there is a vital connection made because now we are His body and we are reigning with Him. We have a royal connection. We are the defenders of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth according to 1 Timothy 3.15 and we are to earnestly contend for that faith once delivered to the saints. We have a battle to fight. We're in a war. Can't you tell? By reading church signs on the way here? By reading what's going on in America? Churches are compromising on every hand. And we were told that they would do so. Know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And those perils wouldn't come from the government and they wouldn't come from a foreign enemy, and they wouldn't come from disease or economic depression. They would come from a watered-down, milk-toast, effeminate, compromising, worldly brand of Christianity who would have a form of godliness but would deny the power thereof, who would be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and who would turn their ears away from hearing sound doctrine and the truth and be turned into fables. We have the truth to defend. God has chosen the weak things of this world to defend His truth. And we are the weak things. But we are going to fight the fight. If Paul could fight, we're going to fight behind him. And there have been thousands and millions between Paul and us that fought that fight as well. Many of them laid down their lives for the truth's sake. We believe in tradition. Apostolic tradition. Paul said, whether you've heard it by word or by letter, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've received from us. Brethren, we are a worship center. Paul told the Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 28, and since we were there recently, I'll hope that you remember it, wherefore we receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We have a worship center that doesn't require a building. It doesn't require a prayer band. It requires us coming together in the Holy Spirit of God and worshiping with reverence and godly fear. And it's the worship center that God has ordained. Jesus taught, The Father seeks such that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He said some powerful things there in John chapter 4. He said, Woman, You and your fathers don't know what you're worshiping. You Samaritans are so mixed up racially and you're so mixed up religiously, you don't know what you're worshiping. Remember where the Samaritans came from? They were half-breeds between the Assyrians and the Israelites. The ten tribes of Israel, when the Assyrians took them captive, they repopulated Israel with their own people. And you can go, there's a whole chapter in the book of Kings about this amalgamation of the nations that the king of Assyria wrought. And it says they served their gods and feared the Lord. But lions kept eating them. 
So they had to get their worship a little more correct before God would back the lions off. You know, they were messed up. And so there was a lot of hatred between the Jews of Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem worship and the worship of the Samaritans. But Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But I want to tell you, woman, even in this city, the worship is about to end because God is seeking those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that was simple New Testament churches, some of which had their meeting houses in the catacombs under the city of Rome where they risked their lives to assemble. Thank you, Lord, for putting us in such noble company. May we be worthy of it. The house of God is a reality check. Look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. If we had time, we could milk each of these points and get all the beauty out of them that the Bible's given us, but we don't. There's a reality check. Asaph wrote Psalm 73. He was David's song leader. And in Psalm 73, he writes about how envious and concerned and discouraged he was about seeing the prosperity of the wicked and wondering why he ought to live a holy life. And so for 15 verses, he bemoans his fate of trying to live a holy life to please God when he sees the wicked having it so easy, comfortable, and luxurious lifestyles. And then we come to verse 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. One of the worst things that can happen to you is to live your life deceived that the things you work for Monday through Saturday are important. What a waste. Do you know how hard you work? You could end up spending your life and getting your gold watch at the end and losing everything until you go into the sanctuary. The church is a reality check. We all know that, don't we? Every Sunday when we come back here, and we assemble with each other, we're reminded what's really important and what is not very important. We, we realize again what Solomon meant when he said, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. It's a reality check to come into the house of the Lord. It's God's seminary. The church is God's seminary for the raising up of men to preach the gospel. You, men do not choose the ministry in the New Testament. God chooses men for the ministry. Young men who think that they can sit down with a college handbook and narrow it down to three choices, I want to be an accountant, an engineer, or a preacher, is not the way God's ordained it to be. It never was. Paul told Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The qualifications for the ministry were not given in a general epistle to a church. They were given to Timothy and to Titus because they were the ones that were supposed to spot those young men that had the gifts that showed that God's hand was upon them and they were to put them into the ministry. The church is a seminary. We may not have a large campus, But we have the church of Jesus Christ and God will raise up men when it is time for him to raise up men to be put in other churches. Brethren, turn to 1 Corinthians. You know these passages. I don't have time to turn you any further. The church is a small claims court. Let me ask you this question. Would you prefer a jury of your peers 
And do you know what they mean by peers these days? Have you seen a jury recently? Would you prefer a jury of your peers picked from the streets or from these pews? Do you know there's two passages in the Bible that tell us this is our small claims court? If we have anything against a brother, it's taken care of right here. Matthew chapter 18, if your brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he'll hear you, you've gained your brother. If he won't hear you, get one or two more so at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word can be established. If he won't hear them, bring it to the church. If he won't hear the church, out the door he goes. Because when the church speaks, it settles the matter. And that's in small matters between brethren. That's not large matters because large matters Jesus Christ and the apostles have already addressed. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul said, How dare you take matters from the church, these small matters between brethren, to the courts of the land? Are there not any wise men among you that should be able to judge in these smallest matters? It's a small claims court. It's a welfare agency. Did you hear read to us in Acts chapter 2 that they counted all their things common? That if some man had a need, those that had more gave to those that had less. We read that again in Acts chapter 4, where they would sell their property and bring the money and lay it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man as men had needs. Not wants. Not wants that we think of in America, but needs. Needs. How about Acts chapter 6? Why were seven deacons ordained? In Acts chapter 6. So that the apostles could give themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And yet widows could be taken care of. Because the church has a welfare system. Now it's got its qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But do you know the church supports widows full time? Widows that qualify. Widows indeed is what Paul calls them. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing God has given us. It has competent counselors. The Bible tells us that when we're making decisions, we ought to seek wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Where would you rather seek that wisdom than with your brethren that fear the Lord and know the Bible and love you more than anyone you could ever go pay $100 an hour to? All they love is the green stuff in your wallet. That's why they're counselors. They're making money. But we have a multitude of counselors in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 tells us there's four reasons why two are better than one. Two are better than one. Because when you fall down, someone's there to help pick you up. When something good happens to you and you're blessed in your labors, you're able to share it with someone. When someone's attacking you, two of you are able to resist better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. But there's a fourth reason. And that's the synergy. How can one be warm? How can you be warm except two lie together? And there's the synergy in the, body, in the bodily parts that the Lord puts together. This thing right here, if you cut it off and lay it on a table, it doesn't do much good. Right here. Cut it off. But together with this and together with this, it can do a lot. And it's the synergy which means that the combination of our parts are greater than the sum of those parts by being together in the church. And Solomon taught that. The preacher taught it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And by coming together in a church relationship like this, we together are able to provide much more than we ever could separately. It's a prayer band. You know, when Peter was in prison, it says, and prayer was made of the church of God for him. You know, why do you think he was sleeping so peacefully? 
Now, this man, this man had not looked forward to death a few days earlier. Why was he sleeping so peacefully? Was it just the Holy Spirit blessing him to sleep peacefully? I mean, the angel had to come in and kick him in the side to wake him up. Or did he know that down the street there was quite a prayer meeting going on? And he had seen recent prayer meetings. I mean, the prayer meeting that's described in Acts chapter 4, the place shook when they finished praying. And if Peter was there, and he was, you can go read it yourself. If he had seen a prayer meeting like that, he was sleeping peacefully with 16 soldiers chained to him. And he walked out of that place. You know, when you meet the greatest difficulties in your life, you have in the church a prayer band that's going to go to work for you and be beseeching God on your behalf. Jesus said, we're two. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, I'll answer that petition. And there's more than two here to pray when anything happens to one of us. Brethren, we've got a replacement family. We have a replacement family in the church. When the rich young ruler went away from Jesus... Peter said, we've forsaken all to follow you. Poor Peter. Peter said all the things that we would say if we'd been there. And Jesus said to him, Peter, no man has forsaken. And he lists a whole string of things. Father, mother, husband, and wife, children, lands, houses. For my sake, that I haven't replaced 100-fold in this life. Right. And I'm going to give eternal life in the world to come. The church is a replacement family. We love our families. But I'll tell you, sometimes when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our family turns against us, our family rejects us, neglects us, and yet we have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters in the house of God that fulfill the words of Jesus Christ. This relationship becomes the best relationship. These brothers and sisters are closer these cousins, that we don't even have cousins in here. We have brothers and sisters. Right. It's wonderful. That's why we say in this church, blood is thicker than blood. Amen. The world can have their blood is thicker than water, meaning families tighter than friendship. We mean blood is thicker than blood. The blood of Christ is tighter than the blood of families. And when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you lose some family that thinks you're nuts for being so committed to Him religiously, Look what you gain by coming here. Amen. And we're big enough to give you a hundredfold. The Lord be praised. Amen. The best friends you'll ever have are right here. All you young people, I wish I could convince you of that. Those friends that are out there in the world are fair-weather friends. They're only going to last as long as the going's good for them. The Bible says, a brother is born for adversity, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And that's what we have in the house of God. David knew that. David said, I am a companion of all them that fear thy name and keep thy commandments. David knew who his real friends were. And David had more friends than you'll ever have. But he knew who the best ones were. Brethren, it's a living organism. The church is not an organization. The church is a living organism. Look at 1 Peter 2, and I'm going to close with this. I have to close with it, even though I don't want to close with it. 1 Peter chapter 2. What were we doing this morning? We're answering a question. What is a church? What does this church mean to you? What should it mean to all of us? And we've gone through a whole string of things the Bible tells us about the greatness of the New Testament church. You know, as children, as a child myself, reading all the Old Testament Bible stories, I always wished I could have lived in Israel. You know, to see that pillar of fire hanging over the tabernacle, to see the pillar of cloud leading us, 
to see those big battle scenes and have the Lord raining hail upon them, seeing Joshua stop the sun, watching David run out to slay Goliath, wanted all that. Thought that'd be wonderful to live in the Old Testament. Oh, brethren, we have something so much better than that. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to show you it's a living organism. It's not just an organization. So many churches end up with such a bureaucratic organizational chart that it almost looks like an organization. And we might get organized in certain ways, but we're an organism, which is a living thing. Look at this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, To whom coming... As unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Do you like all those words about your Savior? Have you come to Him? Have you laid hold of Him by faith? Do you love Him this morning? Have you been baptized in a picture of His death, burial, and resurrection? To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We don't need the tribe of Levi and we don't need the descendants of Aaron. We need the Lord Jesus Christ made forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek and He's made us kings and priests in a living organism, a spiritual house. So that when we take the Lord's Supper later this morning, It is going to be accepted in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that He's made us priests in a living organism called His church. Brethren, there's more. There's more. This is the temple of the living God from the beginning when we started a few minutes ago all the way down to the fact that it's a living organism. There are so many blessings we have in the church. And we have some that would like to join us this morning and so we are going to take them in by the grace of God.